That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Fobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Okay, welcome to another episode of that naturopathic podcast. It's clean shaven Dr. David Miller ND here with um, Bandana Bandana Head Pobega, Dr. Michelle. Bandana Pobega. Head Michelle Pobega. <sighs> yeah. Uh you 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 look very uh clean shaven and handsome. And today uh I barely polished the turd because it's a podcast. Uh so I apologize for oh the small God. video clip that might come into play later. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> Did you get enough sleep last night, Michelle? Uh, honestly, this last week has been a not very fun week for my sleep. And because I didn't actually have to go into work physically or anything this morning before we record the podcast is kind of like my off morning. I slept mm-hmm. in and it was glorious because like last night it was another disrupted sleep. And I was like, I feel like garbage. So I need to sleep a little bit more and I need to I need to unpack why my body is not in a good rhythm right now in spite of my efforts <laughs> so mm-hmm. i actually know <laughs> okay well that seems relevant for today doesn't it because we're going to talk a little bit about melatonin um yeah. and some of the context for bringing up melatonin are i think it's 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 um it's widely used mm-hmm. i i i believe it's uh it's perceived sort of uh application is is greater than the way i use it um, I think a lot of people use melatonin and uh, um, there's some interesting things about it. I think the idea that less is more in terms of dose is something I found when I used it more, I found, or when I used it more frequently, mm-hmm. I, I found less is more in terms of uh, dosage. So under one milligram seemed to work better uh, than three or five or 10 milligrams. Um, I wear an, uh, an aura ring now, so I'm I'm getting some you know, feedback of my, um, of my sleep. Yeah. Dave is fancy. <laughs> it's fun. Um, and so, <clears throat> so I think that's why it's come up and I've also got some, uh, some family members in, in my, uh, in my life who I adore and we've tried melatonin with them. Um, and they've had sort of, um, bad responses. I would say they, they didn't want to stay on it cause it caused like a crazy kind of like dreams and stuff. So that's my yeah. sort of uh, personal background as to why I wanted to talk about uh, melatonin. I think you use it. It sounds like you use it more precisely than I do because uh, you you knew about prolonged release and perhaps how prolonged release melatonin may be superior in some cases. Yeah. So, I mean, when when we came up with this, Dave was asking me if I've heard about REM rebound. And I'm going to be 100% honest. I haven't really like delving into the whole sleep cycle REM this, and I don't have an aura ring and I'm not tracking these things. So, um, but looking into REM rebound is really interesting. And that's kind of how this conversation kind of spurred and, and your 
family's response to melatonin. Before we kind of get into everything and my thoughts on melatonin and how I use it clinically or not use it clinically, um, I kind of want to just go over a little bit of sleep. Yeah, sleep learn cycles, us. Sleep cycles, REM, and then what re- REM rebound is and why it's what its uh, effects or importance is. So um, tip, REM sleep is basically rapid eye movement is what it stands for. And that's a stage of our sleep that's associated with, with dreaming. Although research now shows that we can dream through non-REM sleep as well, but the most vivid and active dreaming typically happens through REM sleep and memory consolidation. Um, and it's and when erasing, erasing memories too, right? I think it does erasing memories in REM I sleep can't too. Rem- I'm, that I believe I'm not it sure. does. I believe it does. It's like, it's consolidating, but also erasing. Right. Which I was interesting. So, um, there's distinct periods with rapid eye movement from side to side. It's also up. It's, it's kind of an interesting time in your sleep. Cause you don't really think about it this way, but it's almost similar to how your body operates when you're awake, except your eyes are closed. There might be ha- more rapid, uh, breathing. There might be more variability in your heart rate. There also could be um, a lot of vivid dreams or what feels like hallucinations. Apparently our serotonin is almost completely absent during this time and same with norepinephrine. And because of this, you're almost in like an atonic state where there's like no muscle tone. There's like a temporary loss of muscle tone, which sounds really creepy in a weird way. Like you're not moving. Uh You're paralyzed. (laughs) It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. You're paralyzed. So um but research have hip, I like hypothesize it's a very protective measure meant you to stop from acting out to from your dreams and thereby prevent you from possibly injuring yourself because sometimes these dreams can be quite vivid. Um, although we can have, like I said, dreams during non-REM sleep. So the hypothesis, we don't know if that's part of why you're in a paralysis, paralysis state, but I think uh, there's much to be learned about why our body does what it does and our brain does what it does. Um and we know very little still. So to be determined. Um, however, it's one of the most fascinating stages of sleep. Your brainwave activity is very similar to wakefulness. Like I said, complete muscle tone loss or partial muscle tone loss, um, irregular breathing, heart rate, uh, rise in heart rate, and the ability to be woken could be a lot easier during REM sleep versus non-REM sleep. And there's a progression as to how it happens. It, you typically experience your first one in the first 60 to 90 minutes after falling asleep. And part of a full night's sleep, you'll go through a sleep cycle, which is about four stages, and you'll go into REM sleep several times, and it'll get longer and longer. And your longest stage is going to be closer to the morning, which is maybe why people wake up remembering their dreams more because it's closer to actual wake time. Um, so we have like a light sleep, uh, two spaces of light sleep, then a deep sleep. Um, and then we'll go into a REM sleep. Um, and apparently REM is important because it plays an important role in dreaming, memory, emotional processing, as well as healthy brain development, which is really interesting. So research hypothesized that REM sleep promotes brain development since newborns spend most of their time in REM sleep. Um, and then there's evidence that animals born with less developed brains, um, spend, uh, more time in REM sleep during infancy than those who are born with more developed brains. So like humans and puppies have less developed brains at birth. Um, and we spend more time in REM sleep, probably for brain development while we're out of the uterus where animals like horses and birds apparently have more developed brains when they are born. So they don't have as much time in REM sleep in infancy, which is actually really interesting. It is. And and that deep sleep happens, it looks like predominantly earlier in the night. So there's that really deep restorative uh, sleep that 
seems to happen earlier in the night. And then, like you said, it gradually shifts towards a little bit more REM sleep in the morning. Yeah. So the, the fact that, you know, yes, we have dreaming, but the emotional processing is interesting. And I wonder if that's why when people have vivid dreams, I wonder if it's a, you know, there was always those people where they talk about like interpreting your dreams and this and that, although I don't know how accurate that is because I don't know how we know how we would know these things. However, I think there probably is a lot of information that comes up in the dreams. And if you have unresolved trauma, stress, things like that, having vivid dreams might feel very unsettling for people, depending on the quality of dreams. So I wonder if that is also an opening to your subconscious um, and some of the things that have not been dealt with. And especially if there's an emotional processing that happens during that time. Yep. So um, highest, I think this, this, I, I want to come back to this maybe sometime in the future. We can talk about this because um, that two to 4 AM seems to be like a real witching hour for so many <sighs> people. And I generally use it as a sign that you're like stress and cortisol and blood sugar are all screwy. And it, yeah. it I, I find it empirically sort of broadly helpful as an naturopath, like it, to the point that it, when someone says, Hey, I, I, you know, I don't sleep very well between I'll say uh, between two and three, like, like you yeah. can almost like interject and, and they're like, Never. wow, how'd you know? It's like, well, cause that's most people. Um, yeah. But it's interesting that if you go to sleep at the regular sort of time, let's say ideally by circadian rhythms, uh, two to, it looks like two to 4am is the max of your melatonin. So when people are waking up during that time, I wonder if that is a soft indication for maybe melatonin therapy, but um, I'm not sure what you think of that like i've i've just in us doing our little research and talking here i've I've already changed how i'll be prescribing it but yeah um yeah yeah i mean i mean melatonin is created by our pineal gland right pineal right primarily yeah primarily gland which is also according to what i remember learning about it before it is retinal tissue so it's light sensitive the pineal gland which means which why it's just why it's such a pivotal gland with regulating your 24-hour clock your hormones circadian rhythms and that's what also produces melatonin Um, and that's why light at the end of the day will affect your natural melatonin production it might be why there's a lot more sleep disruptions aside from the fact that this world just seems to get more overwhelmingly stressful and Mm -hmm. just like busy but we also have a lot of uh light disturbances at the end of the day and everyone's falling asleep in front of a screen including myself i'm still a victim to this stuff um and we're not setting the stage for optimal melatonin production and giving your body and your pineal gland the right messages to secrete melatonin so I wonder if that is also playing a role um, where it might not even be a matter of having to supplement melatonin, but just creating better sleep hygiene practices. Yeah. I mean, it seems like another one of our sort of uh, almost uh, boring foundational plugs here where it's like, you know what, maybe, um, maybe taking melatonin isn't the, you know, the cure all for sleep. It's just an indication if it, if it does help you perhaps that, we need to work on more basic foundational stuff, like get your feet on the ground, you know, see the sun come up in the morning, see the sun go down at night, go to bed when you're supposed to just overall kind of circadian uh, rhythm uh, things that you can do to, to maybe uh, they would be more important than taking melatonin in some cases or most cases. Yeah. Like ambient lighting at the end of the day, reducing screen time, but also bring your stress response down because cortisol is technically the highest at at the beginning of the day with a small peak again in the afternoon and then it's lowest at night or it should be. And then your melatonin should be highest at night 
to allow for going into a sleep state, peaking around two to four, and then decreasing so that cortisol can shine again when you wake up. So it's respecting that rhythm. That's really important. Then that has residual effects on every other hormone that's happening in your system. But also like sleeping in a dark room. I have zero light in my room. Like the alarm clock light goes off, everything gets turned off. And I've actually found that now that I sleep in a super dark room, little lights, if I go somewhere else will affect me. Like if I go to a hotel, like I'll find something to cover their alarm clock because mm-hmm. it literally oh, just sure. bugs the crap out of me when yep. I'm trying to fall asleep now. Um, and little key. things like that make a big, they make a big impact and people don't realize that. Yeah, no, that's, that's super key. And then related to your, um, to what you just said there, I'll, I'll say one of the things that I'm taking home uh, from our research and, and uh, talk about today is, is, the differences in which uh, short-acting melatonin and prolonged-release melatonin, um, which may be used. So, if you use prolonged-release melatonin, you can better. And if you take it when you know, maybe when you go to bed, like it looks like 10 p.m. or some, thereabouts is about an, an optimum time for a lot of people to take it, or like an if, hour before sleep, basically. Yeah, maybe before then. Like that's that's you. Like so, it looks like if I had to roughly guess, I'd say between nine and nine and ten. So, so it looks like if you take a prolonged release melatonin, you'll get uh, a curve of melatonin dose, uh, which better uh, copies or or uh, looks a lot more like the natural curve that you're getting from your yeah. pineal gland uh, secretion through the night. So that seems to be something that I'll I'll I will definitely take that home from our our talk here. Is that I'm going to be using uh, prolonged release melatonin in most cases, uh, and there may be exceptions to that. And one of those may be um, when you have issues with sleep latency. So the, the duration of time that it takes mm. from like, you know, attempting to get to sleep to, to getting to sleep. If someone has sleep latency issues, it looks like that's one of the few sort of harder maybe indications that um, some melatonin might be helpful. And maybe even in uh, maybe just a, a short acting uh, melatonin may be helpful at that time too. Yeah. I mean, I find I've kind of stepped away from melatonin as much. Yeah. Um, but when I, when I have used it, I typically do recommend a prolonged release. If I feel like that's the answer I have in the past, or I'm using it, not in isolation. I'm using it with things that also help bring the body into a state of relaxation. Yeah, that's key. And I think because as far as I know, yes, melatonin helps trigger falling asleep. And there is a component that helps keep you asleep because of darkness and the cues of like circadian rhythms. But I find that staying asleep is much more, I, I, I have come to understand clinically. And what I'm experiencing is that staying asleep is often much more affected by the body's ability to stay in a relaxed state and not have cortisol spikes or blood sugar spikes causing like blood sugar dips causing cortisol spikes. So it's the stress response that I find that I find is having a bigger profound effect on people's sleep quality. And I found that I've moved away from melatonin as much, and I'm more into, um, sleep hygiene as well as things that maybe bring down cortisol at the end of the day and relax the nervous system, um, and have a calming effect on the body. So if I have something for sleep that has melatonin it's usually in a combination product that has things to calm the nervous system mm-hmm. that's usually where and it might not be a prolonged release melatonin but if your body's calming down leading up to sleep and it can stay calm through sleep then your natural melatonin production might might be fine 
Um, and I found that that's how I've shifted my approach to these things. Yeah, I, I think I've I've uh, dampened my excitement with it as as well, and and because it doesn't seem to affect sleep architecture dramatically. And I I know you found some possible indications that it might yeah. affect, um, you know, the changes between non REM and REM. Um, I I didn't see much of that. What it looked like it maybe changes is the speed of these what they call like sleep spindles and that's getting a bit nerdy for the, for the purposes here, but mm-hmm. um, it doesn't seem like I will not use it as something to dramatically change sleep uh, architecture, like the makeup of, of those cycles between REM and non-REM. Um, but it looks like as a background, like, and here, this is another take home. Like the more you need, this is, this is pretty foundational, boring stuff again, but like, say like you take this for any, up any supplement, the more you need it, the more you're going to benefit when you take it. I mean, that sounds mm-hmm. so silly. And mm-hmm. I mean, they don't teach us that in school because it's probably too silly uh, or too mm-hmm. obvious or whatever, but it's, it is really important. And that's why we do tests for other, yeah. you know, if, if someone's low in B12, we probably give them more likely to give them B12 than if they're, you know, they got tons. So there are subpopulations and, and we will, we, we have decided that we do want to do a future uh, podcast, maybe on other specific indications or, or demographics or conditions that, maybe melatonin would be more um, specifically suited for. But for the general population who's just looking for sleep support, it might be a nice background sort of supportive thing, like you said, in a combination remedy, but it's not going to change that sleep architecture uh, dramatically. And, and I did look up just because I love that, um, that book, why we sleep by uh, uh, Matthew Walker. And Mm -hmm. he, he, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, it might help some people. And if it helps, then good. Um, you know, maybe some of it's, uh, some of it's placebo. It's a fairly inexpensive, uh, and, you know, helpful placebo because it has other effects too, but, um, it's definitely dampened my expectations, uh, for, for what I want melatonin to do. And I go back to what you're saying, which mm -hmm. is like, get on your basics, your foundations, your circadian rhythm, um, health in general. Yeah, it's funny. We we talked about this this guy with BD, uh John Dr. Jonathan BD at the last one. This is Jack Cruz, and I was listening to those massively long heady po- podcasts with him on it. But he was talking about how he he's not an advocate for giving your body something that your body should naturally produce, but rather support your body's natural production of that product. So melatonin mm-hmm. being one of those things, he's not a big fan of that. He actually goes through ambient lighting in the sense that he literally does candlelight at the end of the day to mimic like the sun rather than even just like red light therapy or Mm -hmm. something to that effect. They were talking about different lights, but it was hard to keep on board with everything. But, and then that makes me wonder also about the production melatonin. I was like, we as humans have become so disconnected to what it truly means to live in this world. And according to the rhythms of what it means to live in this world as humans and with nature and with the sun and the moon and like, we're so we're, we're so smart and yet we're so not smart at the same time as humans mm-hmm. and then we wonder why we have all these residual problems popping up um so you know i i think that when i found that i found one thing that talked about a study that was in, it was a very small cohort of people it wasn't a big study so i can't hang my hat on it either but uh it was talking about how rem sleep where, where there was there was improvements in REM sleep, but I wonder if that's also just because their circadian rhythm was better, so they were able to stay asleep longer. So they were able to reach more stages of REM sleep because with each sleep cycle, your REM sleep gets longer and longer. So maybe that's why, um, because their circadian rhythm was better balanced. Um, so 
So I don't know because they didn't give into the details. I was only able to find the abstract of that. But just on the whole idea of how we as humans have like, we're overwhelmed, we're stressed out, we're all this stuff. This brings me back to the whole idea of REM rebound, which we didn't get a chance to touch on. And the purpose of REM rebound apparently is it's a phenomenon in which a person will temporarily receive more REM sleep than they normally would. Um, an increase in not just the, the, the frequent, the intense, it'll be an increase in the time, the frequency and the intensity of REM sleep stages. And it seem as a, as a compensatory state for people who have had excessive stress and sleep deprivation for periods of time. Um, and there's been some interesting studies to show people who were on like benzodiazepines coming off because it, because it affects REM sleep that they might actually get REM rebound after coming off of them for people who introduce a sleep app machine after having disrupted sleep, they might start having more REM rebound effect because of that. So now their body's trying to compensate and dip into that REM sleep a little bit more. So it does have like more activity, more rapid eye movements, more brain activity patterns, and you're in there for a longer period of time, which is super interesting. And we don't fully know why or what it entails, but it looks like several hormones also play a role, like corticotropin releasing hormone, adrenocorticotropic hormone, plasma cortisone, corticotropin, like into like, are we seeing a pattern here? It's all like cortisol stress response stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there is some effect of prolactin and serotonin as well. And serotonin is a building block to help, or 5-HTP is a building block to help make melatonin. Um, so it looks like that can Im- improve your sleep deprivation. And I wonder if um, when melatonin is introduced, and if people have had disrupted sleep for a long period of time, part of the vivid dreams that they complain about is that their body is going into a REM rebound when they're finally getting their their, their circadian rhythm cues are more in place because of the support of melatonin. So they might be in REM rebound more and it's more vivid. It's more exacerbated so that that might, I wonder if that's part of, because I haven't been able to quantify why people have more vivid dreams on melatonin. So I'm just kind of critically thinking through this. And I wonder if it's the REM rebound sleep that they go into that might feel more disrupted from a, from a vivid dreams perspective. Does that make yeah. sense? No, it, it does. I, I, that's <clears throat> so like that sort of experience. I don't want I don't know if I say it's clinical experience because it's family members, <laughs> but it's people I, I love dearly. So um, it's pretty close to home. So I know that that's what happened with them. And it's, you know, having, you talked a little bit more about REM sleep and dreaming and all that. It's hard, you know, we look, we look at the evidence on one hand and then we look at, you know, clinical experience or whatever like this on the other hand, go, Michelle, to be honest, it's hard for me to say that it, that melatonin is not having any effect on uh, sleep architecture in light of that experience of these people. It's very clear to mm-hmm. the point they stop taking it. And it's mm-hmm. not, I don't even think it's restorative sleep uh, either, which, which maybe deep sleep is more uh, for restorative like sleep that's probably why we do it earlier in the night because it's in a sense a little bit i don't know if it's more important but so yeah i I, i'm kind of torn on on melatonin um and i think we'll see maybe more in the future um uh maybe a a little bit better sort of granularity of the understanding of what does to to uh sleep architecture yeah i think i think for me like i said it would be used slow doses and i think i saw Oh my God. I don't remember where I did with that, with that paper, but it was talking about how low doses between one to three milligrams 
will actually improve melatonin production sometimes up to 20%. Now, don't quote me on that, but I think I remember reading that. Melatonin production or yeah, melatonin like it, It'll amounts. help your body naturally support your melatonin production by up to 20%. But again, don't quote me, but smaller amounts had more beneficial effects than larger amounts this is the real take-home message um, yes. based on this one particular piece of article or this article I read. And I could have sworn it says something about improving, even supporting your own production more, well, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong on that. So don't quote me please on that one. Don't come and, for blood. <laughs> no, don't come for blood. But me, uh, me and Kara, when I was working more with Kara Dionisio, we, we mm -hmm. did find the same phenomenon just clinically or like one milligram or below was definitely more efficacious mm -hmm. or maybe it had less, uh, whatever adverse possible effects, adverse possible effects in people. That was just, I mean, that's clinical experience. So take it for what it is. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what we found. And, and, you know, big picture again, it's, this seems to be this more an effect on circadian rhythms rather than like uh, this uh, somnogenic thing. It, it seems to just say, if you can sleep, now's the time. And it helps yeah. sort of guide us into that, which is, which, which goes I think along is with just, the idea. which I think is important in of itself, though, like to, to oh, reset sure. that. Right. So it's not that it's not that, without its value, but it's yes. not the full picture when it comes to sleep. Right. Sorry. To and interrupt. it goes it goes along with the idea that the best evidence for uh, the application of melatonin is for jet lag and shift work, mm -hmm. which are circadian disruptions. Right. Or elderly because they're less capable of probably producing it. For themselves just like they're less capable of producing most hormones as we age we just become less effective at making these things so i think the elderly when i saw certain research articles they were saying shift shift work jet lag and the elderly um have the most benefit from melatonin production but younger cohorts of the population who aren't part of those three it might be less advantageous or they might not yes. see the benefits as as much yeah and i i think i think we've touched on then um most of the take homes. Yeah. If it, it's probably most uh, most applicable when sleep latency is a problem, it's uh lower like less is more probably prolonged release is likely superior. Uh the more you need it, the more it's likely to help which goes to your idea of the elderly people above 55 years of is that elderly? My god, I'm not that long from being out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks Dave, we're almost there. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with being elderly. <laughs> One of my sheroes is elderly. That's my grandmother. Anyway, so it seems like um, that's the sort of basic first level. And I think yeah. uh, there might be other populations and conditions, which we'll talk about in a in a future episode, where it yeah. might have more um, clinical, uh, precise uh, application. Yeah. How's that sound? I'm good. Sounds good. Sounds great. I'll okay, sleep so well tonight knowing this information. But I'm yeah. I will, I will sleep well too. And, and I, and it, this, this is actually, I, I'm really happy we did this because this will change. Uh, I probably, I probably am going to use huh. melatonin a little bit more frequently because I shied away from it, but I will use it probably with a little bit more precision, which is, I think, um, yeah. what happens as you get older. As a More strategically yeah. and not in isolation. That's the thing That's I think key too. too. It's, it's the melatonin in isolation for me, doesn't give us the effects that we want. And it's that foundational stuff that really is key. Stepping back into what again. it means to be human and how we're supposed to move on a 24-hour cycle. Yeah. That's cool. it. Yeah. All right. See ya.